Hello and welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, people who create, people who make a difference. Coming to you from Wordspace Studios in San Francisco, California. The show is on hiatus for the summer, so I'm digging into the archives for some great episodes from the recent past that I hope are just as relevant and thought-provoking and entertaining now as they were when they were originally broadcast. On today's show, which aired in July of last year, Dandelion Chocolate's Greg D'Alessandra tells us what it's like to travel the world eating chocolate. He also talks about the craft chocolate movement, why relationships with producers matter, and much more about the story behind both Dandelion itself and the beans behind the bars. Thanks for listening. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers. A number one bestseller in Amazon's travel humor and literary travel categories, and winner of four Solas Awards, including gold for humor. Publishers Weekly called Porcelain Travels offbeat and funny, and CBS travel editor Peter Greenberg called it a very funny book. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which features recorded and live readings of excerpts from the book. Porcelain Travels is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com and other online retailers. This morning for breakfast, I had a dulce de leche bar with chocolate from Ecuador, a profiterole with chocolate from Liberia, a s'more also from Ecuador, a macaroon from Madagascar, a husk panna panacotta from Costa Rica, and a cacao spritzer from Belize. Fear not, with the exception of the dulce de leche bar, everything was a sample size, and it was all really good, and it was all from dandelion chocolate. Greg D'Alessandra, am I saying that right? You, you are, Greg you D'Alessandra? are, perfect. Yeah, because yeah. it's French, but we, in English, Americanized or whatever, so I figured that that would, was going to be my best uh, attempt there. So Greg D'Alessandra is the chocolate sorcerer at Dandelion Chocolate. Greg has been working with chocolate for over 15 years, starting with making liquid nitrogen truffles in college with borrowed equipment from the physics lab. So I'm sure there are a lot of stories there. <laughs> Plenty. He's been uh, with Dandelion for five years as partial owner and chocolate sorcerer, which means he travels the world to find great cacao. Cacao? Cacao. Am I pronouncing that one right? We can talk about Where's cacao versus cocoa. It's yeah. Oh, cacao. Co- yeah. Yeah. Cacao. So I am saying it yeah. right, but we usually say cocoa. Yeah. All right. So we, we can talk about that. Uh, to use to make great chocolate. I shouldn't have second guessed myself. Greg is also co-author of the book, Making Chocolate from Bean to Bar to S'more. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here. I am excited to have you here, especially since Greg was kind enough to bring me two chocolate bars, which, as we just heard, I don't need today. <laughs> so hopefully... The I'm, last. I'm still, I'm still shaking from, uh, from today's uh, chocolate, or this morning's chocolate, because I also, of course, had coffee with that, and I had already had coffee before I got there. But, all right, so you, you travel the world eating chocolate. I mean... Is there a better job? I mean, that's just, it's insane. And I, I, I have to say, my job is the one that uh, almost everybody I meet when I say what I do, I hear anything ranging from that's super cool to I think I'm going to murder you and take your job. Right, it's, which is but, hurtful. Well, you know, I don't want to get murdered. Because I noticed you were with two suspicious-looking big guys outside. <laughs> is, there, is there, do you need protection? I mean, is that, is that the point? That, well, you know, it's, it, when you have chocolate with you, you never know who's going to come after you. Seriously, and especially I mean, when it's your kind of chocolate. Yeah, you got to be 
careful in this world. Okay, so but as you're traveling, I saw quote they had to shut down all of security with Kauai Airport down today. <laughs> now was that were you traveling with with uh, for for chocolate when you shut down the Kauai Airport? And uh, what happened there? <laughs> that was that was a that was a great story from many years ago. We uh, early on at Dandelion. Um, we, as a, as a reward for our employees, took all of our employees out to Kauai to visit our uh, cocoa farm out there. Um, used to be called Steelgrass Farms. Now it's called um, Lydgate Farms. Uh, great friend of mine, Will Lydgate. Um, and so he has a farm. We went out to visit. And on the way back, it turns out there was this confluence of things that happened, including uh, one person saying the word bomb, oh. which you should never do in an airport. It's not funny. Yeah, it's, it's um, not funny. And uh, I'd, nev- I'd never seen it happen before. But in fact, I, so my, my bag had, uh, a, I brought playing cards for fun and a Bluetooth speaker was sitting on top. And it turns out, Two decks of cards and a speaker looks a uh, lot like a bomb. Interesting. In luggage, and so uh, so they kept on running it through. They looked really scared. I n- was fairly certain I had nothing explosive in my luggage, but you anyway, didn't remember packing any bombs I, <laughs> that morning. <laughs> um, and uh, and another of our employees, Maverick, had uh, had harvested eggs, and so he had nitrates on his hand. And the nitrate test, which is you know, when they do the swabbing, mm-hmm. they're testing for nitrates, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a really bad test for... Anyway, yeah. he tested positive for that. Oh, Some guy says bomb. I have this weird thing. It looks like Maver- a bomb. It looks like a bomb. Maverick has nitrates. And the best part was the guy just literally saying into his lapel, shut it down. <laughs> and the whole airport shut down for Damn. like an hour as they were sorting all of this out. Wow. It was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was the first time I'd ever shut an airport down. I've done a lot of... I've had to bribe my way out of airports. I've had to, you know, do all sorts of things, but... Yes, I... I uh, well, it wasn't an airport. I was going to say, I did just recently get asked for a bribe traveling in Central Asia. I didn't, I didn't, didn't succumb, and they didn't shut down the crossing. Um, <laughs> and I helped to, to shut down a wing of SFO during oh. some recent protests, but I can't take credit for all of that. Mm. I mean, you're, you're clearly... That's <laughs> going to be hard to top, I, I think, by anyone, pretty I much. I mean, I'm any. not saying I do illegal things all the time, but I did recently bribe my way into a country with a bar of chocolate. And Seriously. I felt like that was, that's like a, an achievement unlocked for a sorcerer to, that's, you know. Well, I mean, and that's why you're a sorcerer, right? You're working magic <laughs> with that chocolate. Yeah, I tell you, I'll, there you as go. soon as you get a chocolate bar, people are intrigued. There you go. And doors open, apparently. <laughs> Borders open. Borders open. Okay, so I'm going to, a quote from that I saw in the video, uh, one of the, I don't know if you have more than one video, but there's a video you have mm-hmm. online in which you're kind of giving an overview of Dandelion. And Todd Masonis, yeah. uh, one of your co-founders, says, quote, what happened to coffee about 30 years ago is happening to chocolate right now. What does that mean? Uh, absolutely. So, yes, Todd's our CEO. Um, and uh, one of the th- essentially what's happening is uh, most people are aware of third wave coffee, um, of understanding where their coffee beans come from. You know, you know what an Ethiopian coffee is uh, versus, you know, a Colombian coffee, etc. Um, with chocolate... Most people, when you ask them, this is my favorite thing to do. You go into a shop or, or a restaurant where somebody has, uh, has made a chocolate thing, and you ask, what kind of chocolate is in here? And the answer, inevitably, you get is dark. Dark or light. Yeah, yeah or exactly. milk. Right, or right, milk, right? right. And, um, and whereas with coffee, like, nobody would say that. That would be, like, unthinkable. Like, what kind of coffee is this? People would be like, it's, you know, brown coffee. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, but, but Depends it's just, how much milk you put in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so one of the things that's happening today in chocolate is that people are starting to become more and more aware of 
the fact that chocolate even comes from beans. We get lots of people coming into our shop who don't even realize that chocolate comes from beans. Really? Yeah. Where do they think it comes from? Well, I think do they, you know? they, they just think don't it think comes about from it. a factory. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, and, and the reality is the chocolate industry's done a pretty good job of obfuscating all of this. So you don't have a good sense of where chocolate comes from. You just think of it as coming from big factories. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, Willy Wonka, I don't, I think they actually there were cocoa beans at the beginning scene in in uh-huh. uh, and Willy you know Wonka. and Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. Yeah. Um, but they don't. But it's all of the the all of the imagery around chocolate is not um, is not around uh, is not around the beans. The bean. Uh-huh. It's all around the final product. And so one of the things one of the reasons we built a factory in the middle of a city with the factory open to the public so people could see us making it is to help people understand that. Chocolate's not a mystical thing. Uh, it doesn't have to come from big factories in the middle of nowhere that they, you know, that that are s- sealed behind um, secret vaults. It's it's taking cocoa beans and crushing them down, and adding sugar and crushing that down, and and making a product out of that. And okay. it, and it can be as simple as that. Right. The chocolate we make is literally just cocoa beans and sugar. All right. And we're going to talk about that in just a second because that's right. really interesting to me. Yeah. Me um, too. So, but d- before we jump into that, though, give us can you give us just a brief history of dandelion? You know, when yeah. you got started. Um, some of just kind of some of the backstory for people who aren't already familiar. Absolutely. So Dandelion was started in 2010 by Todd Masonis and Cameron Ring. Um, they were two friends who were in tech uh, and they had sold their company. Um, and after they sold their company, they had been playing around with chocolate. They both really liked chocolate um, and had started making chocolate. And had there used to be a good underground market in San Francisco, which you might remember. I don't know if... I don't there, know. There, it's not around anymore. There's probably another one out like there. An underground there. chocolate market? Well, there's just, or just, just underground market. Underground market in right. general. Right. Um, and so they, uh, so they would like sell chocolate there. Uh, and people liked it. Um, they, at the time, in 2010, there were not that many chocolate. And this is, gets back to how this is similar to coffee. Right. You know, now it's like every city you go to, you're going to find a half dozen, a dozen, two dozen coffee roasters mm-hmm. in exactly. every city. Yep. Whereas if you go to a city, you don't find that many chocolate makers. Um, and so in 2010, my guess is there were probably maybe two dozen, three dozen chocolate makers in the U.S. Really? There's mm-hmm. now the over, over 200, maybe even over 300, eight years later. And this is so, the new American chocolate movement. This is the new American chocolate movement. Mm-hmm. So, so Todd and Cam were, were playing around with this. Um, and then uh, they had this dream of opening what is now on Valencia Street, which is this factory where you can see chocolate being made, but also you can get these you know, beautiful pastries made out of the same chocolate you just saw getting made, have a drink, sit down, chat with your friends. There, there's a lot of these type places in Europe, but not so much in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had this dream. Um, I met them in 2011. I was working at Google at the time. Uh, as a product manager, but I always wanted to be in chocolate. I'd been saving up my whole life to like leave tech, leave tech behind and enter the chocolate world. Why? How, where did that calling sort of, or when, why, how did that calling, yeah. or you, you've just always known sort of thing? Well, I have always known, and I think part of it is, uh, as much as I enjoyed the tech world, and, and frankly, the tech world gave me a lot, right? Financially, as well as I think uh, I really enjoyed a lot of what I did, 
it, I, it never felt like I was bringing joy to people. Mm-hmm. Never felt like it, I, I was having a, a, a large enough or significant enough impact on lives. Right. And uh, one of the things that I always loved about chocolate is like, man, it's so rare to see somebody looking unhappy or looking sad when they have chocolate. Uh huh. And I'm not saying it's impossible. Sure. But it's pretty rare. There are a couple people um, out there who don't like it, but yeah. they are the minorities, certainly. <laughs> Very much so. And 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 so there was something I always loved about how much joy chocolate brought to people and and it brought to me um it's also fun because it's this very scientific slash artistic thing to be able to do and so um so my whole life it's funny i after i left google and joined up with dandelion joined up with todd and cam i had friends from 20 years earlier who were like you finally did it you've been Uh, talking about uh this since i've known you and like every job i would take i would tell my new boss hey, I'm doing this for now, but I'm going to leave and make chocolate at some point. Interesting. And everybody would say, sure, sure, sure. That sounds Interesting, great. yeah. And not yeah. really take it seriously. That's um, a whole other conversation. I'll have to have you back on. We'll have to talk about that, this whole how we make the jump. You know, particularly when you have this passion, but then yeah. you're making good money in tech, but you yep. know you really want to be doing chocolate in your case, whatever the passion might be. That's a whole other conversation. I, I have that conversation with so many friends right. from the tech industry who have gotten to a point where they know they want to leave and they don't know how. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a challenge. Well, when you're making good money and uh, they're making it sweeter and sweeter, yep. bad pun, I guess, because <laughs> actually it would be even sweeter if they went into chocolate. But um, yeah, when the companies are making it more and more comfortable yeah. for you to be there yeah. and uh, it's hard to let that go. Okay, but let's go back to chocolate. So okay, yeah. you touched chocolate. earlier on the, fact, on, the, on the fact that most of the world's chocolate is industrial. Yeah. Just give us a quick... Um, Tell us a little bit more about what that means. I mean, we're hiding the beans. We don't really see that in the process. But yeah. tell us a little bit more about what that means for chocolate to be industrial versus you guys are doing small batches and craft chocolate and kind of the comparison between the two. Absolutely. And uh, um, I, I, if I'm happy to go into more details as you want more details. Uh-huh. Um, there's, there's one thing in the world I love is details. Sure. Um, so there's about four and a half million tons of cocoa beans produced worldwide every year. Okay. Um, these beans are produced about 60 to 70% of them are produced in West Africa. Um, there's, but cocoa is only grown in the tropics. So it only grows between 20 degrees North and South of the equator. Um, might be like 21 degrees North and South of the equator, but it's, it's pretty close. And so what this means is that all of the cocoa is grown for the most part in developing countries. There's exceptions to this Brazil, uh, um, Vietnam, you know, there's parts of the world that are growing cocoa that are in developed countries, but most of it's growing in developing countries. Um, and so essentially in, in the late 1800s, uh, there more and more of uh, chocolate had originally been this uh, luxury good. And so there was this drive to turn it into something any, that was accessible to anyone. Okay. This, I think, is a good motive. I mean, like, I don't think any, I, I genuinely don't think anyone had had ill intent. Sure. I think people were like, hey, we want to make this thing so anyone could buy it. Because at the time, it was very expensive. You can imagine importing it from Africa in the 1800s and processing it. So what happened was, they essentially, um, a few things happened. One, there became this very industrialized process for making chocolate that included heavily roasting the beans. So you would taste less of the the impurities or less of the the off flavors in the beans, um, as well as adding things like vanilla, added cocoa butter, etc. All of these things both made it so it was less important how the cocoa beans tasted, but also 
things like soy lecithin and added cocoa butter, one of the things they really help with is the ability to move the chocolate through industrial processes. Mm. So you can make more of it faster. Okay. Um, vanilla is added mostly as a, as you know to offset the bitterness of poorly fermented cocoa beans. Um, a lot of people really like the flavors of vanilla as well, but that's one of the reasons it was kind of originally added. So what's ha- what happened is this: the process kind of grew over time to be to be one of industrial scale. Meaning, I mean, there, there was a couple of things that were really challenging. One, trying to extract cocoa beans. Which, which are a commodity um, and are grown in developing countries. 40 years ago, you couldn't just fly to Sierra Leone and talk to a bunch of cocoa farmers and then have them export a container of beans for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you, it was mostly done on the commodity. Most of the exchange was done on the commodity market or sort of direct trading. One of the one of the cool stats that I heard at one point that I had never thought about is most of the chocolate makers on the West Coast of the United States worked with Ecuador... Um, and Papua New Guinea, uh, and so 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 everything that you could take get a ship to on, from the West Coast and on the East Coast of the United States and in Europe, people worked with Brazil and Africa because there was no canal, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So like you know, a hundred years ago, even getting the beans shipped in was really really challenging. Interesting. Um, and so um, and so what happened was the whole process ended up developing around this. Well, we know the beans are going to taste very good, but they have a lot of these characteristics of the fats in them and things like that that work really well. So what we'll do is we'll do really heavy roasts. We'll add other things to it, and we'll make it really easy to move through um, through uh, through through a production process. Right. Um, what the craft chocolate movement, the new American chocolate movement, is trying to do is bring it back to hey, chocolate's actually about cocoa beans. It's made from cocoa beans, and you want to taste those beans. Um, and so rather than talking about dark chocolate, we talk about chocolate that's from Madagascar or Costa Rica or, um, or Esmeraldas, Ecuador. Um, and we talk about where the beans are from because I think, be, because A, those flavors are very different. And this is one of the things we really encourage people to do when they come to our factories, try all the different chocolates. Mm-hmm. Because even though they're all 70%, they all taste very different and very interesting and very unique. And I, I just want to reiterate what you said earlier for people who might not have caught it. Um, the, the only ingredients that you have in these bars are 70% beans, 30% sugar. Exactly. So if anyone's doubting how different the, the, the beans actually taste and how much it matters, that's all you kind of need to know. And this is where we get into the geeky side. And you can tell that like you know, the people who run it used to be engineers um, is because one of the reasons we do 70% a- across the line is that way it's exactly the point you just made. So you're not like, well, this one has more sugar. Mm-hmm. So that's why it tastes different. It's like, nope, these are all 70%. And they're really just like direct comparisons to each other. And it's one of the things we really love. Um, and one of the things I personally really love about the chocolate community now is it's a community. So all these people have gotten into making chocolate in this way across the world. Mm-hmm. There's great chocolate makers in every country I've been to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all want to talk to each other. They all love this process, love this, this, this work. Um, and we're all excited to get better but not necessarily. We're not. Tr- we're not looking to be the next Hershey mm-hmm. or the next Mars. They're doing a different thing. Right. They're making a very consistent product 
day after day after day, year after year after year, out of something that's very inconsistent. What we're trying to do is bring the best and most interesting aspects of the harvest from this year, much in the way winemakers would do, mm -hmm. where you would take grapes and then, you know, out of this year's harvest, like what does the Chardonnay this year taste like versus last year? Well, and, and one of the quotes I got from your site, I was just about to read and you just made the point, but I still want to say this, chocolate can have more complexity than wine. Uh, and then you, on the website it added, but as most companies will try to remove these nuances for the sake of consistency and cost, many people have never experienced chocolate's full potential. So I liked how that was said yeah, as well. And, and that's very much how we feel is like we're trying to introduce people to chocolate. We're, we're not even just trying to introduce people to our chocolate. Like the, I, There are lots of other chocolate makers um, across the world that I love what they do. Um, Maru from Vietnam. Uh, um, fruition from upstate New York. Dick Taylor from Eureka, California, just four hours. I just north saw of them here. the first. Yeah, I saw them at a site class for the first time. I yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, Askinosi, uh, French broad chocolate, Videri chocolate. There's all of these chocolate makers all over the country, and then there's and then in other countries there's a new chocolate maker, Fossa, out of Singapore that's doing that's making really interesting and great chocolate. He has a he has a chocolate made with uh, with shrimp and bonito flakes in it. Ew. I know it sounds. I'm not sure it's about that one. Really interesting, <laughs> you know. And so this is the thing I love. I love that there's this massive variety in the world, and everyone has their own their experimentation and their own sort of way they approach it, which I really appreciate. One question along those lines is: so you guys are doing just chocolate and sugar, seventy thirty. Uh, is that common practice in, in craft chocolate, or is that just something you guys have elected to do, and that's not necessarily a, some sort of standard practice? So as you kind of dive into the industry, you know, there's there's these like niches. Um, we have a niche that's referred to as two-ingredient chocolate. Okay, there you go. Other people do it as well. So we're not unique in doing it, um, but it's the thing we really enjoy. Um, we don't add, we don't do inclusion. So adding other things in the chocolate bar, whether it be, uh, you know, um, fruit or uh, nuts, nuts or, or like bacon or whatever it is. Everything we do is just beans and sugar. I never noticed um, that's true. Yeah, I never, I never Yeah, we're actually that, yeah. one of the few people that we don't have any milk chocolate. Sorry sorry for milk chocolate lovers out that's there. That's okay. Um, we don't have any milk chocolate. We don't have anything added to the chocolate. It's just beans and sugar. And there's a lot of other people who will start that way and then will start branch to out. kind of like branch out and kind of like look into other things. We, we like it, you know, and, and so... Part of the reason we have a sorcerer, me, you, um, <laughs> is because what it means is when we make a new product, we need to get new beans. Mm -hmm. And so I spend an enormous amount of time talking to people from all over the world, tasting things from all over the world, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but really just trying to find new and interesting people to work with everywhere. Um, let's, just, let's talk about that because yeah. I, another great quote from your site along those lines Quote, getting good flavor reliably has everything to do with building good relationships. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, so there, there's one world you can live in, let's call it the commodity world, um, where what you're doing is you are buying the cheapest product you can um, that has the, the sort of as good a quality as you'd like. And then next year, you're going to do the same thing. It's very much the way a lot of people do produce shopping in a grocery store. Most people don't look at like, well, which farm grew this banana that I'm, that I'm buying? It's like, well, this is the price of bananas and these look ripe enough. Um, the challenge with trying to do that when you're, when you're working in manufacturing is uh, over time, if you don't build the relationships, what will happen is you, 
won't necessarily understand if the beans don't taste good or if, the, or if they just taste different than you expected. You won't necessarily understand what's happening. Um, and so just from the pure pragmatic perspective, we believe building relationships helps us make better chocolate because we know what's happening with the beans. We can give feedback. That feedback can help the producers make better cacao. But it also, I think, just from a fundamental economic level is better because everybody wants to have business relationships they can count on. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when every business owner will tell you they love to have regulars. So we're the regulars for the cocoa producers we're working with right. who come back every year as much as possible, come back every year to buy more beans from them so that they know us, they can rely on us, um, we can rely on them, and we're building long-term working relationships rather than just trying to get the cheapest product possible. And were these farmers already, presumably they were already in business and they were selling their beans to, to other, yeah. other, other places who needed them, what have you. Um, but you guys pay, quote, far above the world market price. Yeah. So how and why uh, does that work? Because in business, you want to save money, right? You want to cut costs. And you, of course, you're trying to really create something that's, that's, that's a craft chocolate here. And so you want the quality of the product. Again, we're not talking Hershey's. We're not talking those others. Yeah. But still, far above world market price. So what's the thinking behind that? Well, the main thing is uh, I've learned an enormous amount about commodity markets in, in getting into chocolate. And the reality is commodity markets are not designed to ensure... Uh, to ensure, ensure people are paid well, they're designed to ensure that there's a stable price. Uh -huh. um, and so what this means is that the, the current market price for cocoa, I believe, is about 2,500 per metric ton. This is 2,500 per metric ton FOB. There's a, there's FOB. A, FOB is um, freight on board, so okay. that means like uh, at port. Okay. So there's also a price that's called farm gate price, which is what the actual farmer gets. Because you can imagine if you're a cocoa farmer living in the middle of Ghana, you're going to be selling the beans to a guy who comes by it with a truck, and then they take the beans and sell them to somebody else and sell them to somebody else. Right, lots of people else. along the chain. Right. And, and so the, the way the commodity market is essentially set up is to say there is, a, there is a price you should pay for cocoa, and then everyone involved in that supply chain gets a slice of that price. The way we look at it is... Um, the way someone coming into our shop would look at it. Where someone, if someone came into our shop, would say, hey man, chocolate is $4 a bar. That's what I'm gonna pay you. I don't care what you're making. Like, and, and, and if that $4 a bar isn't good, you know, if you have somebody who you know, is working the register, well, they just need to take a portion of that $4 a bar. We look at it the same way somebody would look at our chocolate, which is to say, what's it worth to you? And so we work with producers who make really great beans, and then they tell us what the price they would like for those beans are, and we pay it. And then on top of that, you have to layer on the, the cost of, um, of anybody and any intermediary. So people that do shipping or people that do aggregation or warehousing, all of these parts of the value chain, there's an enormous amount of worth to what they're doing and value to what they're doing. And they deserve to be paid fairly as well. So when you sort of take a step back and try to pay everybody fairly, that price is way higher than the market price. So sure. our, our, our average price last year was $6,500 per ton. Compared to $2,500? Yes. Wow. Okay, yeah. far above indeed. Yeah. And, yeah. and we have a sourcing report that we come out with every year that we talk about exactly how much we pay for every lot of beans we buy, specifically because I think one of the biggest challenges, I, I don't want to get 
political. But one of the big challenges I think in the world in general is lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. If you don't if you don't see the data and see the information of what's actually going on, it's very easy to be sort of convinced or marketed to or sort of fooled into believing something. And so um, one of the reasons we have transparency reports is because we think that's the best way for people to educate themselves mm-hmm. about what goes into into the, the value chain of cacao. Um, do you have a sense of who reads those? I mean, do you, do you hear from customers who actually take the time to look at those sourcing reports? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So... The one thing I was surprised by is we have a lot of customers read them. I was surprised at the number of cacao producers who read them. Ah, Yeah, I talked to people. In fact, literally just today, Sarah from Trinidad you know, messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, I'm looking for your 2015 sourcing report. There was some information I was going to read while I'm roasting up some beans. Um, And so it's really interesting how people who are working in cacao read it because they're interested in what other people are doing. They're interested in understanding more about you know, sort of dandelion and why we would buy from one person versus another. And it also helps them level set what their price should be. Right. Because the only price anyone really knows is the commodity price. And everyone knows the commodity price is too low. That's not a secret. So Everybody what, what, what sort of benchmark are they going to use then? Exactly. So you guys are helping them with that. And so that's part of the goal is to help people at least understand what we pay. And now we're, we're not saying that's what everyone will pay. We're not trying to make any sort of like statement of of uh, expectation among anybody else, but at least people know what we pay. But do you know if there's been any sort of ripple effect of you paying more? You know, you um, there definitely have been ripple effects. Um, I don't know that you could attribute it just to us. A no, lot right. of other chocolate makers are doing a lot of great And that's really what I was work. getting at, if other chocolate makers are also doing that, whether it's because they were inspired by you or whether they had just decided to do it on their own. Yeah, I, and I think I think it is part and parcel of the craft chocolate industry is that people care a lot more about how much they're spending on cocoa beans. And the other part, and this is, I think, a really imp- interesting and important part of pricing, is um, y- you can do the math pretty easily. Um, let's say you have a 70, uh, 70% chocolate bar. Um, you lose about 70% in, in part of the process called winnowing, where you're breaking up the bean and taking the shell away. Um, so you lose about 70% when you do that. And then we add 70% sugar back in. So 30%, sorry, 30% 30%, sugar back in for, thank you. Your bar just got a lot sweeter. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, and so what this means is a kilo of cocoa equals about a kilo of chocolate, which makes the math really easy. So then if you do the math on, well, if you're paying 6,000 per ton and our bars are 60 grams, it's about 40 cents worth of cocoa in one of our bars. Hmm. I have to do the specific math again. But right now, the, our, our average comes, comes down to about 42 cents. Okay. And so, what's the, so if the difference in our bars, especially for us, where the, the main thing that you're paying for when you're buying a dandelion chocolate bar is paying for our employees. You know, employing people in San Francisco is is very expensive. Yes. Um, and so one of the main things you're paying for is that. So the difference of us paying $3 or 3000 a ton versus 6000 a ton is going to be the difference between $0.20 cents in the bar and $0.40 cents in the bar. Hmm. So the reality is all of these really expensive bars are not paying for the cocoa anyway. Hmm. In, in a lot of the like large-scale industrial bars, they have one or two cents worth of cocoa in them. So if they change the price, wow. even they doubled the price, you're literally talking changing it from one cents to two cents. And I think I'm I'm a big fan of people doing math on the products <laughs> yeah. that they buy. Yeah. 
So let's talk before we move on. I want to talk about the farmers a little bit because, because yeah. like we're saying, that's such it, yeah. a big part here. Um, something that I was surprised, again, not knowing, so it's not surprising that I would be surprised, but not knowing anything about this is the farmers, their role isn't just limited to growing the beans, Exactly. which I mean, I'm sure that that's in and of itself, that's more than enough, but they do, they do a couple other big things uh, that are part of the process before they get them to you. So what are those two things? Absolutely. Um, there's, it's called post-harvest processing and it's fermentation and drying. This is one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize that cocoa is a fermented product. All of the good stuff in the world is fermented. I'm telling you. There you go. You like cheese, beer, booze in general, there wine, like coffee. The good things are all fermented. It's all fermented. Um, uh, there, there's, there's something to that. Um, and this is why, like, I don't know if you noticed, but I always talk about the people we work with as cocoa producers, not necessarily farmers. There you go. Yeah. Sorry. Because, no, no, no. Yeah. This is, but this Getting is one of those things, right? Yeah. Whereas is like, I think a lot of people think of, of people who produce cacao as doing farming, there are the people who are farming, who are growing trees and harvesting pods and taking the beans out of the pods, but then there are the people who are doing the really hard work of fermenting and drying the beans so that they develop those flavors. And it's hard to give it a number, but a lot of people would say 50 to 60% of the flavor comes from the fermentation and drying. Mm -hmm. So you can take great genetics of beans um, in a great environment. So there's terroir, just like there is in wine, where like where it grows makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So there's genetics, there's the environment, but then the fermentation and drying makes a huge difference. And you have to really have all these pieces firing on the, on, on sort of the, on, um, firing, firing on the right cylinder. Is that the, the expression? Something like that. I was going to try to help you and yeah, I, it's I not, know, it's know, something it's like, about cylinders yeah, and there's firing. Cylinders yes. Um, on all cylinders? Or? Yeah, that's it. Is that what firing it is? On all I think it's firing on all cylinders. Exactly yeah. It. I'm a writer, um, so I guess I should know that. But, but, but so, so. You know, to, to make really good cocoa, we currently work with 13 groups from all over the world. Um, and we work with, uh, and they range from single estate, so Costa Esmeraldas in Ecuador, um, who's owned by the Salazar family. Um, Freddie runs it. He's a great guy who knows an enormous amount about cocoa and cares an enormous amount, pays, pays the workers on his farm really, really well, um, and really produces some of the best beans um, we've had, and I just gave you one of those bars. And you can Thank try you very it much. Later. Thank you very much. Um, I probably have already tried it, but I'll try it again. Um, yes, I'll try it again with this with this new knowledge and have a, a more in-depth experience. Taste it. Yes, well, I'll um, taste the micron, but we'll yeah. actually we probably won't get to that. I was going to ask you to go through step by step process, but you get down to the micron because it. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to talk um, about that probably another time. But but continue. Sorry but, to interrupt. Well, but and and then we we just last year started working with a group in Sierra Leone. So, you know, which, which the Scrims of Sierra Leone are not, they don't own large pieces of land. It's smallholder farmers. And so this is the way most of the cocoa in the world is grown. As opposed to most things people know about that they think of big plantations, right. big farms. Again, like coffee or Most tea of the or, cocoa, right. 90 to 95% of the cocoa in the world is grown by smallholder farmers. And then do they bring it together in cooperatives? Or? Exactly. And so often, sometimes it's brought together in cooperatives. Sometimes they're just individually selling it and someone you know, aggregates it um, and resells it. Uh, but um, the group we're working with in Sierra Leone that I really love and I think is really awesome, um, they're protecting the Gola rainforest. It's the last substantial rainforest in Sierra Leone. And the and there are uh, uh, communities around the rainforest that when it became a national park, the national the, the the that land was their source of income. Mm -hmm. And so the, they basically said to the government, like, what are we supposed to do now that we can't go into this land? And the government said, we're going to work on a project. And the project was put together by RSPB, 
the Royal Society for the Preservation of Birds, twin trading, um, and the Sierra Leone government to basically say, why don't we work with you on cocoa? And if you can make really good cocoa, then you can have good income and not have to necessarily extract resources from the national park. And in talking to the people in Sierra Leone, I went last year and visited with them, they initially were very skeptical and frankly very upset. As you could imagine, if mm -hmm. you were living next to a piece of land that the government suddenly told you you couldn't use. Well, how were they using it before? Well, they were hunting. Just hunting. And you know, growing sort of things. Yeah, okay. you know. um, but, but now they're pretty excited. They're pretty excited that they're involved in this cocoa community and they're getting to engage with people over the world. We sent a bunch of the bars we made of their cocoa back to Sierra Leone and they loved them. Mm -hmm. They were really excited to be a part of this. And so it, it's, I, I like to think of chocolate as kind of the positive side of globalization. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say globalization is kind of a dirty word mm -hmm. as, you know, moving jobs overseas to where it's cheaper. But in chocolate, what you're basically doing is you're working with somebody who can grow cocoa, but frankly is going to be challenged to make really good chocolate because of weather constraints, capital constraints, all of these things. So we can pay better money for beans and then make the chocolate in San Francisco and sell it to people in San Francisco and everybody is better off. Yep. Um, and so it means that, but we can't grow cocoa. Cocoa doesn't grow in San Francisco, with the exception of the, the Conservatory of Flowers, which actually has a cocoa tree. But, <laughs> really? Um, okay. But, you know, Are you guys so, going to make a bar from that? We, we've been talking to them about this. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Really? Cynthia, our dean of beans, is, uh, has been talking to them about trying to get the pods and make like the, you know, the, the one bar the, that like you one, could the, do. It's probably going to be a dozen bars okay. out yeah. of the pods from their tree, which I yeah. think would be really fun to do. That would be very fun. Yeah. Maybe do like an auction to auction them off. Or, yeah, like, some sort of charity thing. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. For the conservatory of flowers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it's, um, I, I love that we get to work with people all over the world as equals. You know, the, I think one of the challenges the cocoa industry has always had is there's a massive power imbalance, as you can imagine, between people in very wealthy countries buying a product from people in developing countries. And, you know, the way to change that is, and again, like we're very, very small. We're a rounding error in the, you know, last year we bought 150 tons of cocoa beans mm -hmm. out of the four and a half million. Yeah. Yeah. So we're small. But I think that's how it starts though, right? Well, and I think, and I think the thing we're trying to do is do it the best way you know how, and you know, uh, when other people will learn from you, and then we'll learn from other people. Yeah. Um, as other people are innovating and doing cool and interesting stuff, we'll learn from them as well. Yep. So I would love to talk more about all that. I know. Me and like too. I said, I, I had a whole <laughs> section that we were gonna. T I was gonna have you take us through the whole process that by which okay. chocolate gets made, but we're not gonna do that because we don't have enough time. And people mm -hmm. can go on your website and find that out, or you can come back and, and we can do it. Yeah. Uh, on another show. But I want to give people, again, who might not be already be familiar with you, uh, an idea about the factory in the cafe. Oh, yeah. And I think, so, because right now it's in Valencia, or it's on Valencia in San Francisco's Mission District, but you have a new factory coming, I think, in September? A new Where factory coming, we're, we're hoping, we, <laughs> so building in San Francisco can be, let's say, chaotic. Uh -huh. um, so we've been working on this project for years now. Okay. And um, we're really hoping... I think we're thinking slash hoping. Before it was just hoping. Now we actually have There's data a bit to, more. To, to believe you we upgraded. might be right yeah. um, that, uh, that we're going to be opening later on this year. Actually, you guys, that, that's the building that has the, I just remembered this, it's got the huge murals. Yes, on exactly. The beautiful building. It's a beautiful building. Yeah, yeah. It used to be um, a printing warehouse. Uh, one of my favorite stories, um, uh, I, so it, the address is 298 Alabama Street. Um, and one of the one of the one of our chocolate makers was reading um, Virtual Light 
by Gibson, uh, and which is post-apocalyptic San Francisco, right? Okay. Yeah. And uh, and in it, there there's a courier, and the courier says, in he's reading the book sitting in this like you know space that we're building out, and the courier says, I got to go deliver a package to two ninety eight Alabama Street. And like that's like an inception nice moment, right? Yeah. Where you're like sitting in the building, references nice. the book that nice. you're reading, um, and I and I just imagine that at some point he probably, uh, you know, worked with that facility because they did printing and they did books and you know, well, yeah, yeah, not a coincidence, so, yeah, so not a coincidence. So anyway, so I'm, it's a really beautiful building. We're really excited to use it uh, to make chocolate, and and it, the goal for that factory is bigger scale, um, but still open to the public. Um, so you can do tours. You can see us making chocolate. Um, we're going to have a cafe there. Um, we're building out a salon there as well, which is... What's a salon? You're going to ask what a salon is. No, I was going to let you finish that. And then I was going to say, didn't I read? And I didn't look. Th- I didn't have yeah. time to look this up. Weren't you guys going to put a swimming pool there? Yeah. Did I not read that <laughs> at some point? It. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, so... So... The salon is 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 yeah, sort of finish a, the salon thought. It's, Sorry, it's a it's, yeah. you know seated seated dessert place. You know, I think it's gonna be really where you cool. get your hair done. Um, sadly, no nails, no hair. No nails, no hair. It's um, not that kind of that, salon. Maybe that's the name for the salon. No nails, no hair. Um, Add it to the list of possibilities. <laughs> well, we, we're working on consider name right that now. one. Consider that one. Um, so uh, so what what you read about actually is the building next to that brick building is kind of this metal shed that was put up as a temporary space. So we're, we're tearing that down and we're rebuilding it. Um, and, and it's a long story, but the zoning in San Francisco uh, is one of the things you can do with the zoning that we have is you can make it into gyms. Okay. And so, like, and this is the this is the complicated thing. Doing manufacturing in San Francisco, you got to figure out how to make ends meet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you know you're you're, you're among people making a lot more money than you are. Um, and so and so essentially, what those plans were was a pool specifically for a gym. Ah. Okay. I know it wasn't it, it wasn't like a chocolate pool. No. And our employees were very disappointed <laughs> to hear about this as well. They're like, we're gonna have a pool, and you're like, well, um, yeah, yeah for a hundred dollars a month if you join the gym. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because so, it's gonna help. Yeah. Uh, what about it's gonna pay for the factory? Yeah. Okay. So the uh, and then I also saw in your blog mm. Japan. Yeah. You have a location in Japan. But I didn't actually see that anywhere else on your website. I just happened to see that as one of the blog articles. Um, We, you know, the whole thing about cobbler's shoes. uh, Yeah. Considering we're ex-tech guys, we should have a better website. Um, I like your website. (laughs) I just didn't see, you know, choose location, Um, San Francisco, Tokyo, or wherever it is in Japan. um, So we have four locations in Japan now. Oh, wow. Yeah. um, And uh, we we essentially were, um, uh, we were... We were approached by uh, a gentleman who is who is very well known for bringing things back and forth between Japan and the United States, and mm-hmm. he lives in the U.S. half the year, lives in Japan half the year, um, and he basically said, "Hey, chocolate in Japan is growing. You guys interested in getting involved in this?" Oh, so you were um, approached. We were approached. Well, that's cool. I'd love to say we're geniuses, and mm-hmm. we knew exactly where to go next. You've been but thinking like, about it a long time. Um, well, Japan was on your radar. In fairness, Japan was, was on our radar. Like we love. We all love Japan. Like, who doesn't love Japan, right? Um, and so it had been on, like, our short list of places we wanted to expand to anyway. Uh-huh. And this just kind of happened sooner than we probably would have done on our own. But it's, it's just great. We, um, so, you know, the people we're working with there are incredible. Um, we have two factories there. And so we have Japanese chocolate makers making chocolate in Japan in the same style we're making in the U.S. But the thing that's so fascinating is that same beans, same equipment... 
they get different flavors out of it uh-huh. because they're getting flavors that are what they think are good and exciting and interesting. So it's about their palates being so different. So it's all about different palates. Uh-huh. And the bar that sells the best in Japan, a lot of people in the U.S. will try it and be like, I don't know if I... Interesting. It's very like savory umami. Hmm. Um, and which a lot in the United States, I think people are like, ah, it's not what I think of as chocolate. And in Japan, people love it. Interesting. Um, so I, I just think it's been a, such an awesome and great experience yep. um, to, uh, to, to be expanding there. Um, we just in Kyoto opened a dessert bar. Uh-huh. Um, so like alcohol pairings, um, our executive pastry chef, uh, Lisa Vega, who was blows my mind all the time, but has spoiled me. So now, I t- now anytime I go for dessert anywhere, I'm like, I mean, it's good. Like, I don't know if it's Lisa good. It could be better. Like, yeah. Where's Lisa? Where's Lisa? Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the biggest downside of having a chocolate factory. You get spoiled. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, if that's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there, there, there are bigger complaints you could have. <laughs> I agree. Okay. I agree. We only have a few minutes, but I just want to throw out that uh, you guys have classes. We do. And there was one going on even this morning when I went for breakfast. Yeah. So can you just give us a quick 60 second soundbite on the classes? Absolutely. Um, so we have a whole education and events department, um, partially because if you want to teach people about chocolate, what better way to do it than classes? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a chocolate 101 class where you learn about, um, we, we, we have you try our chocolate, other people's chocolate, the ingredients that go into chocolate so you know what soy less thin tastes like, um, all of these kind oh, of that'd things. That would be interesting. Yeah, what, does, what does it taste like? Greasy. Uh. Is like It's like a fatty... It's more texture than flavor. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, um, then we have a 201 class where you make your own small batch of chocolate, which is super fun to do. Um, and then we have the 300 level classes, which are trips. So we go on trips to Belize, Dominican Republic, and Tanzania. I lead all these trips. You lead all of them. So, um, so if if this has sounded interesting and you feel like you want to spend a week listening to this stuff, mm-hmm. come to Belize or the Dominican Republic or Tanzania with us. It's super fun. When is the next trip? Uh, the next trip the is uh, Tanzania in September, uh-huh. which is already sold out, unfortunately. Uh, but we have a it. trip to Belize in February as well. Okay. Um, and those are really fun. And you limit them, I think, to 8 or 12 people? Yeah, we try to limit them to, to 8 to 12. It depends on the location because we want to make sure everyone on the trip, we get, everyone gets to know each other. Right? This is, we don't want this to be a cruise ship full of people. We want it to be a trip where you like learn a lot about cocoa and chocolate and where it comes from. Going to the Dominican Republic, you learn all about like the cocoa industry itself, which is super interesting. Small batch trips for small batch chocolate. Exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, that's the, can we use that slogan? Sure, please do. Please do. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention uh, before I let you go is you did write a book. Oh, yeah. And it's called Making Chocolate from Bean to Bar to S'more. And mm-hmm. you wrote it with three other people. Mm-hmm. And just give us the 411 on that so people yeah. can check that out. So, so the book was written by myself, Todd Masonis, um, and uh, Lisa, Lisa Vega, and then Molly Gore. Um, so essentially, Lisa's our executive pastry chef. She uh, wrote the, the part that was about um, making pastries. Uh, Todd wrote the part about making chocolate. I wrote the part about sourcing and the part about equipment. And... And the reality is Molly was the person who made sure this book actually happened. She was the writer, writer among us. And why a um, book? Well, when we got started, we wished there was a book we could read to learn about chocolate. And there really wasn't. Making. There really no. wasn't a book out there. There is, you know, so there's Beckett, which is, you know, industrial uses and manufacturing of chocolate. 
which is a tome, but it's not about small batch chocolate making. It's about, it's a really interesting and useful book. If you want to be the Hershey's, the next Hershey's. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there's, and there's a lot of books about tasting chocolate and eating chocolate, but there wasn't anything out there about how to like make chocolate from the bean. And so much in the way the Tartine bread book is a book about how do you make a loaf of bread? You know, it's a 50 page recipe for making a loaf of bread. That's kind of what we wanted to do is make, uh, make a book that really talked about how to make chocolate from the ground up. But even what about beans? When you hear the word CCN 51, what does that mean? No idea. You know, yeah, read the book. <laughs> read the book. That's true. I should have picked up a copy today when I was there. I'll I go back. And get a, you should have brought me one. I know. Next have, time. That's when okay. I come you back. brought me two bars. You're, you're, you're on my good page. Um, we are out of time. Uh, but I would love to have you back because I have lots more questions and this was really fascinating for me and I'm sure it was fascinating for the people listening. Sweet. Well, you're just a Bart right away, so I will happily come back. There you go. Uh, dandelionchocolate.com. Anything else to mention? Anything like uh, coming up in the next few days or something that we want to get out there? Um, is it the, the other thing we do is we do free sourcing talks. We're all, every time, we, and we have one about Brazil on... Uh, July 31st, where I'm okay. going to talk about my recent trip to Brazil. And is that at the Valencia? That's at the factory. Valencia Street Place. Okay, July 31st? July 31st. Two weeks from now, approximately, check out the sourcing report on Brazil. Brazil. Which is all about the sugar. Not well, the actually, so this is a trip to Brazil to talk to cocoa farmers there and uh-huh. learn more about cocoa in Brazil. Okay, because you don't have cocoa from Brazil right now. Uh, yeah. But that could change. It will. Oh, okay. Go July 31st to find out how it's going to change. DandelionChocolate.com. Greg, thank you very much for being here, and thank you for the chocolate bars. Thank you so much.